There's a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia. It goes like this. This is um, a beaver. They talk in Narnia. This is a beaver. He says, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And the beaver says, you'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? Asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet Aslan. Lucy now says, is, is he a man? Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. And if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Safe. Who said anything about God being safe? God is the king of kings. He is the creator. He has all power. Who said anything about him being safe? Do you go cuddle with a lion? Yet at the same time, he's good, and his arms are open for us, and he's shown us the extent to which his love will go for us when he's on the cross. God is not safe in the way we use the word safe in our day. If you open yourself up to God, you will find your life wrecked, and you will find your ambitions ruined, And you will find a great deal of risk. Because relationships are risky. Relationships are not safe in any form. Consider that for a minute. How many of those who have been married or are married, how many have been hurt in marriage? See, if we were raising our hands, which I don't think you guys knew you were supposed to, we would all, all be, I, I have, I, I've been hurt in marriage. People that have been divorced have definitely been hurt in marriage. Because anytime you enter into a relationship with a person, you are opening your world in a way where you're relinquishing full control. And anything can happen at that point. So is God safe? We try to keep him that way. Consider this question that's thrown around a lot. Are you religious? 
And a lot of people nowadays get defensive and say, oh, I wouldn't call myself religious. I don't really associate with this or that. I consider myself spiritual. Well, at least we have that. But spiritual is one of our attempts to make God safe. But don't miss this. So is religion. So in religion, we typically try to keep God close enough yet far enough, and we put this buffer between us and him. We either call them pastors or priests or you know, our, our, our religious leadership they become the representative of God to us. Or we put creeds and doctrines and beliefs and teachings and we, we pad ourselves from God. Or we put certain worship songs or worship teams or different church styles or whatever. We put all these things around us to sort of put this buffer. We want the sense of God's nearness, but we don't want Him in all of His power, His, His roar, His, His risky lion-likeness to be in our midst. That's way too much. That's risky. So religion is a way of us putting something between us and God, yet not losing him. Spirituality, spirituality is a way of saying, okay, we want there to be a God. We want him so close that he's part of every single little piece of our lives. In fact, he's even part of the thoughts I create of who I want him to be. Spirituality basically says, I don't want you to tell me about God. I want to discover God as I discover God. And then we eventually begin to create our own religion according to Brandon. And he's the worshiper and the priest. And not beyond reason, he's also the God. So what we essentially have is that when we are religious, we are putting God against humanity. This little... I'm a sinner, I gotta go repent. He's upset with me, I didn't keep the rules. But then when we're spiritual, we're reversing that and we're saying, God is me. And that's the spirit of our times, is that there's a unique God within all of us. We just gotta let him be expressed, let him out. I don't think either of these options are very good. And I think you know, as you would have always, some of you would have already answered that question, religious? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And although that's a well-worn out phrase, I don't think it's inadequate within the proper definition and context. But please be careful when you use the word relationship. Because is it really a relationship to you? Have we opened it up to him like a relationship with all of the risk that comes Frankly, most of us are living either religion or spirituality. And I think Hosea wants us to see what relationship can be and what it can be, if you know what I mean. Where there's high risk, there is high reward. And Hosea wants to be our guide through both. So if spirituality is God as man and religion is man against God or God against man, Relationship is God with man, his nearness, his closeness. So I'm going to read to you from C.S. Lewis this powerful quote you could chew on for the rest of your life, as I've been doing all week, Um, and then we'll look at Hosea. Here's what C.S. Lewis has to say about love and relationships. He says that there is 
no safe investment. Is he safe? Of course he isn't safe. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, true, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The alternative to tragedy is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and all perturbations of hell. Miss that up. Um, hold on. The only place outside heaven. Don't miss this. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Whoa. The only place I can be safe from the risk of love is hell. Another way of what he's been saying is, if you want to love and truly love and give your heart to someone or something and have a relationship, it will be broken. Fact. That all of us have stories to tell. So the alternative is, I will just give my heart to nobody, I'm just going to keep it here. And Lewis says that that will harden it and it will damn it. It will be like hell. And that kind of heart is on its way there. So Hosea is going to show us the risk of relationship, but also the reward of it, because we realize that we need it. So, are you guys ready? Are you willing? Okay, let's go. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of Yahweh that came to Hosea, the son of Barry. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So Hosea is about the 700s, is what that's saying, the mid-700s to late 700s B.C. So he watches the northern kingdom of Israel fall in the middle of his life. Now, verse 2. When Yahweh first spoke through Hosea, Yahweh said to Hosea, you're going to be awesome. You're going to be amazing. You're going to preach, and there are going to be altar calls, and the nation is going to turn to me again, and they're going to love you. No, no, that's not at all what it says. He actually tells him to go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, a harlot, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking Yahweh. So Hosea, like a good prophet, says, Aye, aye, captain, and went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibalim, and she conceived and bore him a son. That's commitment. He didn't just join with a harlot. He did the whole family thing with a harlot. Commitment. You don't start to have a child with a partner unless 
you're opening yourself up to risk there because you have a relationship. He could have easily said, okay, I'll fulfill God's will. And, okay, you live in that room. I live in this room. We'll meet together for meals. But other than that, you have your own Netflix account. I have my own. We're good. But instead, Hosea goes the full distance with this prostitute. You are my wife. We're going to start a family together. Setting himself up. Verse 4, Yahweh said to him, oh, and so they have a child. And so in verse 4, Yahweh said to him, call his name Jezreel. And Jezreel means God will scatter. Because the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, this isn't Judah and Jerusalem. This is the rebellious ten tribes, the north. They're going to be scattered. And true enough, they were scattered to every corner of the world. Then, verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And Yahweh said to him, call her name no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And then in verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. So here's her third child. And Yahweh said, call his name, not mine, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Ooh, this book starts hard and harsh. Okay, Hosea, your life's ruined. Go meet a prostitute and marry her. Have three kids. Oh, and by the way, I'm naming them things that all say bad news, bad news, bad news. But do not miss this, because the minor prophets are going to feel like this a lot. But everywhere where there's a warning, there's going to be a promise. And here God promises in verse 10. Yet... The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. Remember, that was one of the names. It shall be said to them, children of the living God. So not my people will become my people. And verse 11, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Remember, Jezreel, the first kid, was named God will scatter. But here he's saying he's going to bring them all together, and great will be that day. And then chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, by the way, whoever put the chapters in here totally missed this one. It's obviously part of chapter 1. They must. There's actually a joke in seminary. There was a joke that um, when they put the chapters in there, it was a guy who was on a buggy with a horse, and every now and then they hit a pothole, and he kind of misplaced one. This is a good example of that historical fact. I'm... Very much joking, but verse 1 of chapter 2, say to your brothers, you are not my people. The third child, you are not my people. And to your sisters, uh, you have, wait, I'm sorry. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. So there's the promise. Look, Hosea, the names are bad right now, but I'm going to use this relationship and it's all going to turn around. This is the promises that are coming. Okay, but now, chapter 2, verse 2. This is the reality of the situation. What God has Hosea do is marry a prostitute because he wants Hosea, his prophet, to know what it's like for God to be married to his people Israel. Hosea, marrying Gomer is going to break your heart because she's not going to be faithful to you. Now you'll know how to tell my people to come back to me because... They are like the prostitute, and I'm like the husband who's done nothing but love them. 
So we have this little analogy, if you will, an enacted and a lived parable in which Hosea is like God and Gomer is like us, unfaithful, rebellious prostitutes. Aren't you so glad you're at church tonight? So in chapter 2, verse 2, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, for I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are all children, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. Israel has played the whore, he's saying. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who, who gave me bread and my water, and my wool and my flax, my oil, my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. So shall... Uh, She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, Oh, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished upon her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Ooh. That's what's going on here. This isn't just a people who, oh yeah, no, we're too busy following up with everything that's going on in the world right now to remember God. That's not what's happening. They have actually taken the gifts and the love of their nurturing husband, God, Yahweh, and have have taken that and then looked to Baal and said, thank you for all these things. You are so good to us. (laughs) Baal, people say it different ways. I've always been taught to say it, Baal, but you can't help but realize that it sounds a lot like Baal, right? Because here is this God who is an option for people who don't want to be in a committed relationship with Yahweh to Baal, to have an alternative option. Friends, this is actually what spirituality in our age is, is we don't want to commit to one way of following God. We want to have a safety net or a plethora of ways. So let's bail on organized religion so that we can have it both ways. Religion, on the other hand, too, is not far from the same idea. It's, you know what? Sometimes God gets too close and personal. He asks Hosea to marry a prostitute. Let's just keep the system. That's our bail option. Is okay, we go to church and we sing the songs and we read the Bible and we hear a pastor, we're good. Neither of these are relationship. And so Baal has become their option to bail out of the relationship when it gets too close. For us, we have to ask, what are we bailing? What are we leaning upon? Where are we bailing? That's what Baal is in our lives today. And so it was not unrealistic for the same people who would worship Baal and literally visit prostitutes for Baal would have prostitutes in the temple and then to also go to the temple and worship Yahweh. That was not even in their minds. They were like, no, this is the best of both worlds. 
This is why they're considered prostitutes. But it does get better in verse 16, 216. And in that day, now you're going to see that day a lot in the Minor Prophets. That day refers to anything between the coming of Jesus to the return of Jesus. Sometimes prophecy cannot see the precise location of things. It just sees, oh, there's something good up ahead. But it doesn't know that that thing that's good up ahead is like Wonderland, next 14 miles. They just thought it was like one mile, right? So there's a, there's a broad range of things that that day stands for. But, verse 16, in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and she will be remembered by name no more. It'll end with a happy marriage. Revelation ends with a happy marriage. And Baal will be remembered no more. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. And verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know Yahweh. Friends, this is crazy. This isn't God just pretending like nothing happened and be like, oh, we'll just pretend I just met you and get remarried all over again. This is Yahweh looking at his people who have betrayed him and who have had their sexual relations, so to speak, with another God, another husband, and have had children that way, saying, you know what? I know you've done that, and it has rent my heart in two. But I will bring you back anyways. Because my love for you is an unwavering, relentless commitment. Love is so crazy today. We think of love as a feeling. I get asked all the time, when Christians have to love people, does that mean we have to feel happy thoughts for people? Are you kidding? How unhuman do you think we're supposed to be? Love is not about feelings. I don't always feel happy about everyone I run into, even at church. Don't think if it was you, because we're just not even going to go down that road. And I know some of you aren't happy. Okay, never mind. I was going to turn the table, but we don't always feel affection for people. But what love in the Bible is, and especially as we see in Hosea, it's going to be this word we see, hesed, it's the Hebrew word hesed, it comes in my Bible as steadfast love. Some people have it as mercy. Uh, it's, it's, it's exactly that. It's the unwavering, relentless commitment. Love is a choice to, un, to be unwavering and relentless about your commitment. If, if love was about how you feel for someone all the time, none of us would ever get anything done. You realize that? You see people that fall in love for the first time, they, they get nothing done. They're living in some fantasy land all the time. I don't know. I just saw Bambi recently, thanks to Disney+. Plus. It's been a while, but Evelyn was watching Bambi, and <laughs> I forgot how when Bambi meets his little female deer, I don't remember her name, but he's like prancing in clouds of heaven. He's like gone. I'm like, that is what happens when people feel that unearthly feeling of infatuation or Twitter-pated as it is in the movie. We can't function in a Twitter-pated state. Nothing would get done. We wouldn't have chiropractors to fix us. We wouldn't have chefs to make us food. We wouldn't have clothes on our backs. 
Um, Therefore, there's a moment when love is and the real, lasting, sustainable, deep love, which keeps and moves the world forward and makes relationships real, makes things grow and happen, it becomes an unwavering, relentless commitment. And this is what God is promising to his people early on. Now, Hosea in chapter 3 is going to feel what God feels. Yahweh said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. See how you like it. And is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. (laughs) Please don't think that it's as petty as them. Oh, the raisins are on sale. Ooh, worship. It's not quite that petty. The cakes of raisins were things they made for different gods and deities at certain festivals. So it's a, it's a religious expression. It's a ritual. Um, but now, Hosea, you're supposed to go and marry Gomer again. What we don't see is that she had run away from him. It's possibly just so obvious that it didn't have to be said. So he's going to go back to her. So in verse 2, it says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethech of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Come on, Gomer, you got to have an unwavering, relentless commitment to me because I have that for you. Can you guys imagine if you were Hosea? The way your heart would be rent and broken and crushed. This is how Hosea wants us to see that God feels about us every time we bail on him. Every time we choose to have a safety net of other options and don't choose to have the risk of real relationship with him. So what the rest of this book is, what the first three chapters you saw is we have a broken marriage. Hosea, go marry Gomer. She's a prostitute. He starts a family with her. She leaves him. He has to go and buy her back from another person and brings her back. That's the broken marriage that's restored at the end. That's chapters one through three. The rest of the book is now Hosea coming out of this experience, preaching to the people of Israel, telling them what God wants from them, because like Gomer broke the marriage with Hosea. The people of Israel broke the covenant with God. So now we're going to have to look at this broken covenant. And what is God feeling? What does he want from them in this? There's going to be a word that repeats, and we're going to come to that at the end. But in the middle, there are three accusations that Hosea has against the people of Israel. These are the three things you need to have a relationship, but Israel is accused of having none of them. They are intimacy. You cannot have relationship without intimacy, right? You can't just be roommates. That's that's a relationship of sorts, but not the kind that will bring much fruit. You need intimacy. You need loyalty, obviously, which Hosea knows oh too well that Gomer won't give him. And you need vulnerability. Intimacy, loyalty, vulnerability. Let's see how Israel does not have these. So in chapter 4, verse 6. My people, this is 4-6, are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. 
Now, knowledge sometimes means intellectual heady stuff. And it does mean that in part here. Later, you'll see in the chapter, we're not going to read all of it, but you can read it and see that the priests themselves are being accused of not teaching the people about God. They don't know him because the priests are partly to blame. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, he's just like this great force of love. You just got to feel him. And then like, oh, yeah, you can be found in Baal's temple, too. So just kind of like go wherever your instincts want to take you. So the priests are guilty because they haven't actually promoted proper knowledge of Yahweh. But here's the twist, is that in most places, and especially in Hosea, do you know what the word know actually means? To know God, to know someone? It doesn't mean, oh, I know a car you drive. I know all your uh, your website passwords. I know where you shop. It doesn't mean any of that. Chapter 4 of Genesis opens with an Adam knew Eve, and she had a son. You see where that's going? To know is to have intimacy. And God's accusing Israel of not knowing him in that kind of way. Some people are like, "Uh, that's kind of weird to talk about God in that way. But this is how the Bible likens it, is that God wants nearness. He wants nearness with us. In verse chapter 5, no, chapter 6, verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 4, you see this. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? That's a nickname for the north kingdom of Israel. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? That's the southern part that has Jerusalem. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Your love in the morning is there, the beads of water glistening on the green blades of of grass. And it's gorgeous, and it's fresh, and you can just feel the moisture. Oh no, the sun's coming up. Oh no, 30 minutes later, where's all the dew? That's the love of Israel. It's there, and then it's gone. It's there just long enough to say, oh, it's beautiful, and then, oh, where did it go? It's almost as if Israel's flirting with Yahweh. Oh yes, we let, oh bye, we got other things to do. And just poking him on the shoulder, hee hee hi, and then they leave. It's the short, the short little burst of infatuation, and then, oh no, there's something more interesting over here. We're gone. That's how Hosea likens their love. Very poetic. But then um, in chapter 6, verse 6, two verses down, you see this. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus quotes this twice to the Pharisees. You guys got it wrong. Relationship is not religion. I want your steadfast love. I want your intimacy, not your sacrifices or your bowls. We often push him a little away with our religiosity. 
That in, in verse 6, um, for I desire steadfast love, that is the Hebrew word hesed, steadfast love, which I'm just calling unwavering, relentless commitment. Um, I want to now point you back to verse 4 when it said, your love is like a morning cloud and like the dew. That word love in verse 4 is also hesed. So here we have the contrast of Israel's hesed and God's hesed. They're nowhere near close. God wants intimacy, but there's no intimacy. Number two, problem number two. It's in our next verse, chapter 6, verse 7. They have no loyalty. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And the covenant is theological language for God's hesed, his unwavering, relentless commitment to his people. Um, like Adam, they transgressed that. So like Gomer and the marriage contract with Hosea, she transgressed that. She went away. And there they dealt faithlessly with me. So in other words, what God sees as them being like Adam and transgressing his covenant with them is just like faithlessness. It's disloyalty. It's adultery is how God sees it. He could have just said, you're going to Baal, you're doing whatever you want, is faithless, it's disloyal, but he likens it to Adam. That's going all the way to the root of sin, isn't it? What did Adam do? Adam basically came to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in this beautiful garden of Eden, and there the serpent tells him, hey... You know when you do eat of this, you will be like God. And you will know good from evil. And Adam's like, ooh, I'll be like God. That's the message of spirituality. You can be like God and make your own shots about what's good for your faith and what's not. And Adam went for that. See, one of the problems with spirituality is that it does not want to commit. It's disloyal. One of the problems with religion is that it's not intimate. It's like the roommate situation. But here, somewhere in the middle is a relationship where we have intimacy and loyalty. So, there's an accusation that they're faithless, faithless, they're disloyal. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 9. Strangers devour... His strength. This is talking about Israel. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. In other words, the love that Israel is giving himself to, the relationships he's having that aren't God, they are sapping his strength, and they're adding gray hair to him. They're making him old. They're taking the youthfulness and the strength from him. And that's exactly what the Proverbs tell us, is that when we give our strength to another, we become a crust of bread. You give your power to that which you worship, which is why only God is worthy of worship. Because you give your power to God, he's not like, oh, now that I have it, be my slave. He takes it and he gives it back to us in his way. It's called grace. It's called the Holy Spirit. He gives it back to us. But when you worship an idol or anything that's just part of the created world, it cannot deliver you. You give your power to that, it's going to enslave you. 
And so as Israel is bailing on God with Baal and what are other infatuations, they are giving their strength away because we were made to be in the image of God, ruling with Christ over the creation. But as we go to other things, we are turning our back upon the image of God and we're becoming the image of self. And we are not capable of holding a normal life in my own strength. Hence, Genesis 4 has a murder right after they decide we don't want a relationship with God in Genesis 3. So we see the strength being sapped. Strangers devour our strength. They sprinkle gray hairs onto us. Verse 11, 7-11. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. There's another flirtatious image for you. A silly dove. Ooh, you're so cute, Egypt. Ooh, ooh, Assyria. Ooh, Egypt, Assyria. One of those love triangles that get complicated that make great literature. <laughs> Team Peta. Okay. Chapter 8, verse 11. We see Israel's lack of loyalty. They're using religion to get out of it. 8.11. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. What? Got it? Okay, so because Ephraim's multiplied altars are sinning. In other words, they're building altars because they've sinned. Oh no, we've sinned. we got to make this up. Build an altar. We've sinned. Let's make this up. Build an altar. We've sinned. Make this up. Let's build an altar. So Hosea is saying because they keep on making altars for sinning, these altars have become to him altars for sinning. In other words, oh no, we messed up. Oh dear, make an altar. Oh, this is so easy. Every time I mess up, we just make an altar. We're good. And the land's becoming full of these altars. It's just the exact same way that people that are not in a relationship with God use grace. Oh, I'm covered. Great. Oh, oops. Did I do it again? I'm covered. Oh, we do the same thing. Verse 12. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. I just can't even get to them, even if I told it to him 20 million different ways. Verse 13, as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but Yahweh does not accept them. So more religious ritual, but they're not actually getting to the heart of God. Um, disloyalty breaks things. Chapter 8, verse 6, there's three series of things being broken. 8, 6, you see this at the end. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Remember the golden calf in the wilderness? Samaria built their own calf. Not just one, but two. Well, that's going to be broken in pieces. Look at the end of verse 10. And the king and princes shall soon wither, no, shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Um, They're paying off the Assyrians. So they're going to writhe. They're going to be broken. And then in verse 14. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. So Judah and Israel will also be broken to pieces. So a lack of commitment, a lack of loyalty, it rips things apart, and things will fall apart. So they have no intimacy, they have no, intimacy, they have no um, loyalty, And now they have no vulnerability. Look at chapter 12. It starts the verse before chapter 12, 11, 12. Remember, the guy that put chapters in Hosea was on a buggy. 11, 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. 
and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with the God and his faith and is faithful to the Holy One for now. Chapter 12, verse 1, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long, and they multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. What's he saying? He's saying Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. In other words, he's saying they've wrapped themselves with these deceit and these lies. Now, a real relationship needs honesty, right? But honesty requires vulnerability. Honesty means I'm an open book. See what I got. See, lying is not... Well, let me say that another way. Honesty is showing all your cards. Just because you're not telling a lie doesn't mean you're honest. Right? You might tell half the truth. That's not honesty. Full truth is vulnerability. You have to be open and upfront with everything that you are, your weaknesses, your flaws, and the things you've messed up in. And the partner must be trusted to not stab you or run you through when your guard is down. Real relationship is like the beautiful connection between David and Jonathan. Remember when David kills Goliath? Jonathan is so impressed. He's the king's son. He brings his royal armor to David, and he gives his armor, Jonathan gives his armor to David. That is true friendship, and that is true relationship. It's when you say, I'm no longer going to wear this protection layer. I'm going to take it off and let you have it. Two things going on there. When you give your armor to somebody else, you're not only now in a vulnerable state and unprotected, but you're now trusting the other person not to run you through with those weapons. And that's what Israel will not give to Yahweh. And this is where we struggle the most in relationship, not only with each other, but with God. Oh, things are good, God. No, I know, I know I did that. I'm just human. Come on. I was not angry at him in my heart. He cut me off. It's the law of the jungle. We wrap our lives with maybe not what we'd call lies or deceit, but we wrap them with excuses. We wrap them with justifications and say, but I was entitled, or they deserved it, or it wouldn't have been that way if it wasn't for. (laughs) Oh, I do that so much. But we do this, and you know we are not good at this with each other because you hear all the time when we pass each other at church, how are you doing? I'm good. (laughs) You've said that for 50 straight weeks. You are a miracle. Because I'm not good. (laughs) But you can't tell someone who's always good that you're not good. It's like, oh. Well, God must not be blessing you. Stay away. It's contagious. See, vulnerability can't wrap ourselves with lies, and it has to come forthright. Um, Hmm. In verse 7, chapter 12, verse 7, it says that there's a merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. That's Ephraim, the merchant with false balances. Things never weigh out the way they should. You're always weighing the scale. You, we do this all the time. Do this all the time. Yeah, so-and-so said something mean about me this week. I'm okay, though. It doesn't hurt that much. Are you tipping the scale there? Because... 
I'm not that awesome. I get really hurt. I'm sure you do too. Um, okay, so there's no vulnerability here, and you can see that in some more parts of this section. But I think we need to now get to this unwavering, relentless commitment by God. So you've seen these three accusations, and they're sectioned throughout here in Hosea. They have no intimacy. They have no loyalty. They have no vulnerability. And yet, the unwavering, relentless commitment of God keeps getting them. He won't waver. He won't relent. He's committed. So the whole time, he's throughout this text, weaved through, saying, hello, I'm still here, despite all this. I'm still here. So... I want you to notice, in chapter, this is the best part of all. Um, There's so many you can point to, but chapter 11, verse 8 is the highlight of how does God feel about this? I think you can imagine if you're Hosea how you would feel, but how does God actually feel? What does God say about this? Well, there are parts where God is totally angry, and he's like, yep, you're all going to be destroyed. The enemy's going to come, and everything's going to be ruined, and I'm going to be so happy dancing over your dead bones. I'm adding that, though. He didn't actually say that. But it's what it feels like. Um, but then they're at the same time, God's like, but, but, but I've committed myself to you. So how do you deal with these dual emotions? Well, 11 verse 8, we see, How, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? It's just images of destruction. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. He's been saying, guys, exile's coming. You're going to lose your kingdom. You're going to be scattered throughout the land. And you deserve it. Remember, name that kid. God will scatter. Name that kid. No mercy. Name that kid. Not my people. And yet, how can I do this? My heart recoils at the thought of treating you like this. And then verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Verse 10, they shall go after Yahweh, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves with the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares Yahweh. He will roar. That's where, by the way, C.S. Lewis gets the idea of Aslan's roar bringing winter to an end that we just read at the beginning. I want to fix them. So, look at chapter 14, verse 1. Here's the call. Hosea at the end says, okay, guys, you see this. You have no relationship with God, but he's yearning for it. So, chapter 14, return, O Israel, to Yahweh your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to Yahweh and say to him, like, you got to talk to him. You need words. You can't just be like, mm, <laughs> have pity on me. You need to go and tell him, I did it all. I'm so sorry. It's a lot like the prodigal son who had to return and go back to his father. And he had this whole speech ready. He never got to say it. But he had it ready. So take with you words. Say. Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. Or I love the New King James. Receive us graciously. 
and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. This is called confession. You're admitting you're wrong now. Assyria shall not save us. We recognize that now. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the works of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. And then God responds, I will heal their apostasy, or that's their waywardness, their backsliding, their harlotry. I will heal it, for I will love them freely. Or as the New Living Translation says, my love has no bounds. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily and shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall, his root, his shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shade. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Oh, Ephraim. Oh, Christian. Oh, Brandon. What have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Everything you've desired is in me, he says. Everything you desire. You thought it would be more fun if you broke the restrictions of a God of relationship. Then you found out that you got gray hairs and you were reduced. Your strength was reduced. And then you remembered, oh, the maximum pleasure the universe has to offer is in God. It's slower, but it lasts. In me, in me comes your fruit. So then Hosea closes with, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the way of Yahweh is right, and the upright will walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. So what are you going to do? So that was one spot where you saw this. One more. Go to chapter 6, verse 1. There he calls them to return. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says the same thing. 6 1, come, 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 come. Let us return. This is Hosea speaking. Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Let that sink in. That we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know Yahweh. His going out is sure as the dawn, and he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. In other words, we can count on him because he has unwavering, relentless, committed love to us. So let us return. Let us return. Yes, there's been pain, but truth is, friends, that we are not punished for our sins, but by our sins. God isn't literally, Ron, how dare you have that thought? Boom! You're going to have four flat tires when you leave tonight. It's more like we run into trouble because we've strayed from the path. And things happen because, well, yeah, you walk in the thorn bush, you're going to get thorns in your ankles. Duh. So come back. He's allowed us to get hurt so that we can be healed. 
They say bones are stronger after being broken. I haven't broken one, so I don't know. But that's what I'm told. But then this is so great, isn't it? After two days, he'll revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Hello? Hello? Friends, this is the invitation to return. It's not just a prophet of old saying, oh yeah, he still loves you. It's Jesus coming as the ultimate fulfillment of Hosea, and on the cross, stretching out his arms saying, I'm vulnerable, I'll take the hit. I'm loyal, I will say I love you even if you're going to kill me in the midst of it, and I want intimacy. I will wash your feet even before the cross. I will let one of my closest friends betray me. On the cross, there he shows us. He doesn't just tell us, like Hosea tells us about the unwavering, relentless commitment of God. He shows it to us on the cross. And then on the third day, he was wounded because we were wounded. He was torn because we were torn by our sin. And now he takes all of that on for us so that he raises, he's risen, he, I'll get this. He will, he was raised on the third day so that we too will experience a raising up in and with him. Friends, I don't know how far you've turned your back on your relationship with God. I don't know where you are at this minute. And I don't know how long it's been. God isn't keeping score. He isn't keeping score. There's nowhere too far. The cross was as far as he could. You can't go further than that. You can't go further than God, why have you forsaken me? The call to return is possible now. There's no altar to build. I'm not going to ask you to come up here and pray this formula to fix you. Nor am I going to ask you to devote 13 hours to vacuuming the carpets before church for us. Nor, there's not a tithe that you need to give to reach this. And nor is the communion we're about to take in just a minute here. Nor is this demanded in order to receive his love. These are symbols to remind us that this is all you need. The cross is all we need. Just to return. But, but we, if we're in this religious mode, we keep hearing, no, he's mad at you, he's angry. You need to read and read and read over and over till you hate it. 11 verse 8, when he says, how can I give you up? My heart recoils within me at the thought. So all we need to do is return. Yep, there is high risk in relationship. We will... God will allow you to go through struggles and sufferings because he loves you, because he wants to grow us up. Yes, there's high risk. Yes, some people in the church can be some big-time jerks, but it's because we actually have relationships with each other. And having a relationship with God will lead us down some areas that, ah, maybe it was more fun to just be spiritual, not religious, or religious but not spiritual, or whatever. Maybe it was more fun that way. But where there's high risk, there's high reward. And there's no better life than the one that he says he will revise us on the second day and raise us up on the third day. That is life that we were meant to live. And it only comes in relationship with him. The question is, is it a risk worth taking? He's already given us the answer. And he said, yes, a thousand times, yes, it's worth taking. You just need a return. So, Father, we return